Please remain standing and turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind that blew over the earth and waters and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven, and went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand, and he took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off of the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you, bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the work that it does in our hearts and lives, and we pray that you would take it and make it effective to that that end today. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes and instruct us now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Last week we were in Genesis 7, we looked at the repeating phrase that Noah did all that God commanded, and although that phrase is not in our text today, we still see that pattern continue, that Noah was walking in faith and obedience, that he was trusting God. And if you don't see it there, all you have to do is turn on your imagination a little bit and imagine what it was like to now have been in the ark a really, really long time. You know, we take a cruise for seven to ten days. Okay, this was no cruise. Uh, The rain lasted how long? Forty days and forty nights, right? So how long were they in the ark? Over a year. They were in the ark over a year. So was Noah trusting the Lord and walking by faith? Well, Scripture doesn't give us insight into every thought and word that Noah had. In fact, we don't really have much insight into the dialogue that happened and took place in the ark. But you can kind of wonder if you and your family spent 
three days, <laughs> let alone 370 some days, in a closed environment, environment, what would that look like? Well, I know what it would look like with my family because my motto has been through the years that as we gather with extended family, three days is it. Because after three days, somebody's got to apologize every time, and it's all, well, it's always been me so far. So we can look at this passage, and even though we don't see that phrase continue, we know that, that Noel continues to walk trusting God. But what shines even more brightly is God's faithfulness to Noah. That God promised Noah and his family to save them, and he did. But he delivers them in a way that doesn't quite look like what you and I might want if we had written the script, that we would have wanted to spend that much time Again, we don't have to work really hard with our imaginations. You know, there were not only no modern facilities back in this time, but you can imagine what life was like on the ark. You, you think of the food. Uh, they were only eating uh, vegetables and so forth. After a year, I mean, I know what happens to vegetables. Not that this ever happens in our home, but let's say if a vegetable were to stay in the fridge longer than uh, 10 days, you know, what you find in the bottom of the fridge, what were they finding in the ark? God is faithful, and he cared for them, and he provided for them throughout this entire time. God is immutable. He never changes. His faithfulness never runs out. He remembers all of his promises, and he keeps all of his promises. This means that he's trustworthy, that we can trust in him, that our walk of faith is not some kind of blind faith where we're hoping in something or someone who has never shown himself to be trustworthy. It's the opposite. We trust in a God who has proven himself again and again and again. Over the last few years, there have been a number of, um, uh, and I don't want to make it sound like there's been any more of this, but I think just with social media and so forth, we tend to see it more. But there have been a number of kind of higher profile cases where well-known Christians have abandoned their faith. And instead of doing so, Quietly, where you kind of hear about it after the fact, they have used social media and blogs and articles and so forth to kind of make a public public spectacle. Uh, publical, that's a new word there. You can use that. It's free of charge. A uh, public spectacle of their what they're terming deconversion. That they're going through this process of walking away from the faith, and 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 they're using this term deconversion. And you've probably, if you're on social media at all or, or read articles, places like the Gospel Coalition, you've seen this happening recently. What I find interesting is that the, the, the pattern that emerges almost in all cases is a questioning of the authority of God's Word. Uh, not, not just really the authority, but the, the truthfulness of it, uh, the sufficiency of it. It usually begins there. Did, did God really say, almost echoing that question of the serpent toward Eve in the garden. Did God really say? Did he really mean that? But what has been interesting even more than that is, and I think some of this is generational, the newer cases have included this almost victim mentality, this, this idea of divine abandonment, that God has somehow neglected them, that there was one particular who wrote an article with these questions saying, no one's asking these questions. No one's talking about these questions. Questions about, you know, 
it, with suffering, you know, if, if they're suffering and God's good, how do we you know, join those two together? I don't know where he is, but I, these are questions that Christians have wrestled with for thousands of years. Everybody's talking about these questions. Maybe not in those circles, but these are not questions that are unique to this individual or person. Rather than holding on to truth, they continually question God's trustworthiness until they find it convenient to jettison the faith altogether. Um, It's troubling. It's sad. And I think what makes it a lot more sad is the fact that they have, uh, one in particular, created a a pod show, almost like a a radio show, where people call in and tell their deconversion stories, as if it's the, the, the atheists have become the uh, evangelists, so to speak, of their own position. And it's, it's sad, and it's troubling, but it's also a time wherein we examine our own hearts. Because none of us are um, above this. Uh, this is not beyond what any of us could walk through. And if your faith has never been tested or sifted before, a day will come when it is where you do ask really tough questions, where you do wonder, is God good? Is he present? Has he forgotten me? Where is he? And those are okay questions to ask. The questions are not the problem. It's where do you go for the answers? And if you go to your own circumstances and you go within yourself to try and find the answers, you will end, almost certainly, you will end where all of these other people I have mentioned will end have ended up. Because in ourselves, we don't have the answers. We aren't absolute. We're fickle and we change and we feel one way one day and one day another. We have to go to the one who never changes, who is faithful, who has proven himself over and over again. You think of, uh, I've been taking this course um, through CCF. I'm grateful to have had the opportunity. CCF is a ministry that we support as a church. And so last year I took a course, and this summer I took another one. And uh, it's been extremely helpful. Uh, And one of the things, uh, this is a little trickle-down benefit uh, for you guys. One of the things that has resonated, and I've read these words before because all of the books in this course were books I had read before, but if you've had this experience where you read books again and again, you notice and learn new things that you didn't see before. And there were two particular questions, it's really the same question, asked two different ways, that I find very helpful. You know, when I say examine our hearts, I think a lot of times pastors say things like this and you think, yeah, we should examine our hearts. How do we examine our hearts? You know, what, what does that look like? Here's a couple questions that, that I've put in my tool belt, you can put in yours, to help you examine your heart. What is it that I'm getting that I don't want? And another way to ask that, what am I not getting that I want? You know, we're all worshipers. And, uh, and fundamentally, our sin is a worship issue. God said, don't have any other gods before me, and that's exactly what we do. We create little idols. Calvin said our hearts are idol factories, right? We create little idols and so many different things that we begin to worship that we have affection for greater than God. It may be possessions that we want, or it may be a problem-free life that we, you know, we, we don't want problems. It's, it's those kinds of things. What is it that I am wanting more than I want God, or what am I not wanting that God has allowed to come and sift through his hand? Well, you imagine Noah 
and his family in the ark? Do you think that maybe they wrestled with some things that they uh, wanted and were not getting? Or things that they were not getting that they wanted? I think that that's probably safe to assume that those battles were there in their hearts and they were probably manifest in their relationships. They probably got in on each other's nerves more than once. But yet you don't see Noah shake his fist in the, ears, in the air at God. You don't see him jettison his faith. He doesn't give up because he knows who God is. He knows who God is. He clings to the truth and he holds on to God. And so we see in the opening words of Genesis 8.1, but God remembered Noah. And we're going to talk about what that means. But the emphasis here on this opening word and throughout this chapter is on God's faithfulness toward Noah. That God never left him, that God didn't abandon him, that he allowed every event, every one of those days that we can number and wonder how difficult it must have been, God allowed all of that to come through his own hand. You may be in your own ark experience your own storm, as it were, in your life. Uh, Maybe it's gone on like this for a long time and it's been difficult. You may may feel like you've been forgotten. You may feel like you've been sending out doves and hope that the uh, waters have abated, that the end is coming, that the door is going to open and you're going to be able to get out of this mess. Know this, our God is faithful. He has not forgotten you. He is true. And his promises are sure. And so let's begin then in verse 1 and talk about what this is. Uh, God remembered Noah. Well, when you and I think of remembering, what are we typically thinking of? Something that we've forgotten. That's right. We remember because we have forgotten something. I mentioned the class that I, I took. I did the final exam this week. I studied I tried to recall everything that I had learned and studied and crammed into my head before I sat down and took the exam. And I came up here and took the exam, and as I was driving home, you know what happened, right? You know, all the flood of of memories came back, all the things that I forgot. Oh, that was what I meant to include on that particular question. Oh, I forgot to include, you know. And you're kicking yourself because you're remembering everything that you forgot. Well, this is not at all what is happening in Genesis 8.1, because God never forgets. He doesn't forget anything. Psalm 100 verse 5 says, For the Lord is good, His steadfast love endures forever, and His faithfulness to all generations. I like this one, Isaiah 49.15. Can a woman forget her nursing child? This is God talking through Isaiah. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will never forget you. God takes the most extreme example. A mother, could a mother forget her child? And we think never. And God says, even if they could, I never will. I'll never forget you. And God has not forgotten Noah. Instead, what's being expressed here is God's intention to act. In fact, every time the idea that God remembers is used in Scripture, and it's used in a number of places, it's all always signaling His intention to act in His covenant promise, that He is, he is going to act on behalf, on, on behalf of something that He has promised or said before. 
In Genesis 19.29, it says, God remembered Abraham. This was the story of Lot. God remembered Abraham and thus saved Lot from the destruction in Sodom and Gomorrah. In Exodus 2.23, it says, Their cry, this is the Israelites, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God remembered, not that God forgot, but God was going to act. He was going to act on behalf of his chosen ones. We don't ever have to worry that God is going to forget us. He has promised never to leave us or forsake us. So the real question is not so much, is God going to forget me, but what am I going to do while I wait? Because that's really what this is about. It's this waiting issue. They waited for so long to be rescued. And you see this even, and we'll look more closely as the story unfolds. The story, the tempo almost slows down a little bit to show this emphasis that how long they are waiting. Well, God is at work. He isn't absent. And we see in, in verse 1 that he causes a wind to blow over the earth. Nothing is happening by chance. Everything that is happening is according to his plan and according to his time. In verse 2, he closes the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven so that the rains and the waters are stopped. The language here, it reminds us of creation a little bit. There's a lot of that language that we see here that points us back to creation. The word for wind is the same word for the Spirit of God. And The Spirit of God was doing what over the face of the deep? Was hovering over the face of the deep. And here we have the same word for deep uh, that is referenced in the first chapter of Genesis. God didn't simply send this act of judgment and step away, but he is now, he's at work through the entire act and is now at work in the restoration or the recreation of the earth. God could have made the waters disappear in an instant, couldn't he? I mean, he could have made all of this go away. Okay, 40 days, 40 nights, 40 is a symbolic number in Scripture. We see it in a number of places. We've talked about that already. Okay, we can give you 40 days and 40 nights, but then at the end, I mean, can you just you know, make the water go away? Let's set the ark down nice and gently and let's come out and let's get, let's get on with this. Forty days is nothing compared to a year and ten days. A year and ten days is a long, long time. You think about God speaking the world into existence. He spoke and things came into existence. So he could have spoken and simply taken care of this flood. But there's waiting to be done. Noah and his family have to wait. We see in verse 4 that it was on the 17th, 17th day of the seventh month then that the ark comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Interesting, very specific dates are given, times. People that want to, to treat the flood account as some kind of moral lesson, as it's some kind of analogy or some kind of uh, uh, untrue story. I mean, a lot of specificity that's given throughout the flood account, I think to emphasize that it really did happen. The rain that had lasted over a month, now all of a sudden we're at the seventh month, so there's this you know, six-month uh, time or, or five-month time really that, that uh, happens before the ark then settles. We don't know where this mountain is. It's not Mount Ararat. That's probably what, you re- that's what I remember from Bible trivia, right? It was on Mount Ararat. It's actually the mountains of Ararat. We don't have the specific mountain. Um, And then in verse 5, we get now from the seventh month, we jump to the tenth month. And now the mountains are beginning to emerge. 
And then in verse 6, the story now begins to slow down. We have another 40 days since the mountaintops have emerged, another 40 days that Noah then opens a window that he makes in the ark, and he sends out a raven. And this raven is described as, as going to and fro, meaning that it didn't return to the ark. He sent it out, it didn't come back. Now, ravens were unclean birds, in part because they were scavengers. And so... I don't know how long it would have taken for all of the dead animals to decompose, and that's kind of gross to think about, but most scholars think that there were still some left, and that's what the raven did. He went out, and he landed on debris, or he landed on carcasses, and he found a smorgasbord uh, of food uh, to enjoy. He didn't return to the ark. Well, after the raven, then Noah sends out a dove, And we know this. This is one of those stories we learn as children, right? He sends out the dove. It comes back. It hasn't found a place to land. He sends it out again. It comes back, and there is this uh, uh, olive leaf in its uh, branch, in its its, uh, beak. But we also see that there's this seven-day interval. And it says again or after another seven days. So it it shows that Noah's functioning on this kind of seven-day interval, that he's following the order set in creation uh, by which we're to work. And, and, And each seven days he sends out this dove. And in verse 11 it comes back with this sign of new life, this olive leaf. Olive trees are abundant in the Middle East, and so this uh, tree or plant uh, had, had emerged and the dove had found it. And then again, again, he waits another seven days and sends out the dove for a final time. It's final because the dove does not return. The dove has found a place to land, and Noah knows that the time is closer. But the time still isn't here yet. Okay, they've waited and waited and waited. They're going to wait some more. Uh, you wonder if the Hebrew for cabin fever first emerged here, like that term, because that would be an understatement to describe what it was like for them. And Scripture doesn't tell us what they were going through, but the theme of waiting is one that we see in Scripture over and over again. A verse that's a favorite for many of us, Isaiah forty thirty one. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Or Romans 5, verse 3. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Any time that we have to wait, that God gives us a situation in, in which we have to wait, The time is not lost. God could have made the waters go away instantly, but He didn't. So there was purpose to each and every day. It's designed uh, for, for Noah, but it's also designed for us to draw us, our attention, to God's faithfulness, to see God for who He is. Because what happens is our circumstances are screaming in our face the very opposite Our circumstances are saying God isn't true to His promises. Our circumstances are saying God has forgotten you. Our circumstances are saying, clearly God doesn't love you. Look at what's happening. All of this is designed by God to show us, to magnify who He is. Because in this time of waiting is when He grows us in strength, endurance, character, and hope. What we often want when we're suffering is for just the suffering to go away. 
or for difficult times to fade away. But God has bigger plans for us. Difficulties, stress, waiting, suffering, all serve a purpose, purpose in conforming us into the image of Christ. Consider these words from a pastor, Stuart Stogner, who writes, the fact, listen closely, the fact is no one ever truly tastes the sweetness of grace without first tasting the bitterness of disillusionment. I don't even know that we could taste grace without disillusionment. You only learn to forgive by being wronged. You only learn patience by facing trouble that won't go away. We have our little jokes that we make about praying for patience, right? Don't ever pray for patience. You only learn your own need for mercy by seeing your sinfulness, bitterness, impatience, worry, complaining, self-pity, and the rest. Do you think that Noah and his family might have faced bitterness, impatience, worry, complaining, self-pity, and the rest as they waited in the ark? I think it's quite possible. Because if any of us were in the ark, I've seen enough head nods to know that I'm not the only one, my family, I'm not, I'm not unique here, and that if I was put in this situation, that we would face the same struggles with the same sin patterns. But yet God often uses these trying times to not only show His power in salvation, but to draw us to Him in sanctification to walk in faith and repentance. The dove has left. Uh, It's found a place to land. You think that the waiting is done, but look in verse 13. It says in the first year, and then in verse 14, we get to the second month, the first month of the first year, and then we get to the second month of, uh, uh, in verse 14, day 27. So we're almost near the end of the second month that the earth is still drying out. And the words for dry here, two different words that are used, one meaning drying and the other meaning completely dried out. So there's still this drying process that's occurring and he's waiting, waiting, waiting a a full year and 10 days before they get in what in verse 15 is the all clear. God says, disembark. It's time to, to get out of the ark. And he says, go out. And the command not only includes the people in the ark, but the animals, that they're all to go out. And again, we see this reminiscent of creation. Look in verse 17, birds and animals and every creeping thing, right? The same word order. Uh, Again, in verse 17, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply. The same command that was given in the creation account. Verse 19, every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth. This is the reset of creation. God had judged the world. Uh, for its sin, and now he had uh, preserved Noah and his family to reset creation. The God who had created all things had promised a Redeemer. Remember that back in Genesis 3.15? I've mentioned it once or twice as we've gone through Genesis. Genesis 3.15, I'm, I'm being sarcastic. You guys know I've mentioned it more than a few times, and I'll continue because that promise is so central. It's the, it's the, it's the proto-euangelion, right? The first announcement of the gospel. And that promise had been given, and Noah is a part of that promise because it's through the line of Noah that this promised seed would come. And it is the same God who preserved Noah, who rules and reigns, over the storms of our lives. So what I'm saying here is God accomplishes His will and His purpose. And it doesn't always look like the way that we want it to. In fact, it's often not the way that we want it to be accomplished. 
I'm sure that Noah wouldn't have chosen this project. A hundred years to build the, 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 the ark. Over a year to spend in it. But God was working, calling Noah to himself, and he's doing the same thing in our lives today. Many years after Noah, the Redeemer would come. He would come in human flesh to save us from our sins. And while on earth, Jesus demonstrated his power over creation. In Matthew 8, you, re- you will most likely recognize the story. He, when he got in the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. And he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? The winds and the sea obeyed the words of Jesus because they heard the words of their Creator. They heard the words of their Master. The disciples were not spared the storm. They were saved from the storm. They feared for their very lives. They said, Master, we're perishing. And yet Jesus was with them. He went into that knowing what was going to happen. And He is with you and with me in our lives and in the storms we face. He knows what's coming before you do. And He doesn't send you alone. He goes with you because He's promised never to leave you or forsake you. The judgment that God executed in the flood was right and true. We've looked at that in a number of ways because that's what sin deserves. And we know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. And so we know that's true for us too, that we've done nothing to deserve to be saved. But God, being rich in His mercy, while we were sinners, sent His Son to die for us. Listen to the words of Romans. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Cling to that truth. Hold on to your faith because of who God is. And know that He keeps His promises. That He is faithful. That He never changes. And just as He was faithful to Noah, He is faithful to you and will be with you. Let's pray. Father, may the words of Your faithfulness ring in our ears today that as we leave these doors and are bombarded by circumstances that say the contrary, they scream in our faces that you are far off or that you don't exist or that you don't love us or that you don't care. And we're tempted 
the whispers of the evil one to believe these lies. Lord, may we not believe these lies, but may we hold on to truth that you are who you say you are, that you are a God who is faithful, that you never change, that your mercies never run out, that your love never ends. May we hold on to this as we walk into the storms of our lives that we're facing, the challenges. May we remember who you are. Would you strengthen us in that faith for your glory, that we may be a shining light where you've placed us to testify to the hope that we have, that much may be made of Jesus, that he might be magnified in our lives, we pray in his name and for his sake. Amen.